This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, Tony. How are you this evening? I'm superb. Only two hellos, though. That's not well, auspicious. Well, I spent, uh, let me see, two and a half hours on my local school's back to something plan. Um, and I, I took notes because I, I knew this would be important. Oh, I, 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 it sounded like you were one of the architects. You spent no, many hours no, no. designing it. No, no. I spent two and a half hours listening to it. Um, and I want to say to all those who are on the video with me, thank you for sticking it out for the two and a half hours. Those of you who ask questions, maybe you should write them down before you ask them because your questions were stupid. So, um, the school, the health advisor, I think she's called Dean of Health. It's a high school, so I'm not really sure why they have a Dean of Health. Um, provost, provost of Health. Provost of Health. This was her quote when she started her portion of the discussion talking about student safety. It's the school health and safety program for reopening. She said, you need to think of all these preventative measures as layers of Swiss cheese. Whole got that analogy? That's, that really doesn't conjure up a positive connotation no. for me. My wife looked at me and she goes, what does she mean? I said, well, every little, every piece really has holes in it, like Swiss cheese. If you layer them enough correctly in the right order, maybe you have a full mask of some sort. But that was probably not the the most confidence-inspiring uh, thing. They're planning to send home assigned in, signs and symptoms of COVID-19 to all the children and parents to be aware of what you should look for in, for COVID-19. Okay. It's July, not March. They are actually sending home a video on how to wash your hands. Again, because it's July, not March. Well, actually, would th that would have to be you're not two years old, you're an adult or, or a sixth grader. Apparently we've not learned to wash our hands yet, even in the face of this pandemic. Then again, uh, you know what? Let me very briefly interject that sure. given the level of certain personal hygiene habits in our household for, um, people that are much older than two, that, uh, instruction is perhaps well-founded. Well, is there an instruction on how to take a shower? There is that, not, but there should also, that should be included. So they wanted to put together their own video on how to wash hands that they thought the school nurse could put together. I said, go to YouTube. There's probably a thousand videos on how to wash your hands. You don't need to make up a new one. Just link to another video. It's really that simple. Well, but there is, you know, a duration, right? From what I hear, the 20 seconds, hot water. Yep. yep. Scrub, scrub until you bleed. <laughs> I don't know if blood was involved. <laughs> My favorite was the superintendent. Uh, put up his email address. Now, this is a new school for me, so I didn't know what the superintendent's name was. Um, this also did not inspire a lot of confidence. His email address is a hack at, and I won't lay in the school district. So before the at symbol, it's a hack. Probably not the ideal person to have as your leader, but that's what we've got. Um, yeah, I would have gone with some nickname, perhaps. I would have reversed it. Hack uh. That would have been better than a hack. That's uh, not much better. That then conjures up fur balls or something. I, I, don't, I, 
I didn't say it was much better. But I think the whole the, you have to excise the hack, or it really doesn't work. I, I would agree with you on that. So the reason I bring up my two and a half hour slugfest uh, is because schools across the country, well, I should say, teachers' unions across the country have found an opportunity to demand social justice instead of teaching. Uh, was it North Carolina wants health care for all before they'll go back to teaching? Right. And uh, illegal immigrants have to get full health care as well, or they won't go back to teaching because right. somehow the two are connected. Um, the state of Florida has sued the governor because he's demanding that they reopen. And I believe California, or at least Los Angeles, has demanded some sort of social justice stuff. I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was basically we want everything not related to teaching. Uh, but my favorite, and you tell me if you're right, my favorite has been, I don't think it's fair to the kids for us to go back. I think it's dangerous for the kids to go back. Now, statistically, outside of certain populations, the kids are minutely at risk for developing yes. COVID-19. Yes. The teachers, on the other hand, have a much higher risk. So I would prefer that the cowards who call themselves teachers, not every teacher, not every teacher, please understand that. But the cowards who are saying I'm there because of the children would be honest and say, I'm scared for me. Okay, that's a legitimate talk. Yeah. Well, first of all, is it really is it really the teachers or is it the teachers union? Those are okay. sometimes those are sometimes a distinction without a difference, but but other times, you know, the union has its own agenda. I mean, sure. for, for instance, one of the reasons that people are fleeing unions uh, in droves when given the opportunity to do so, right, is because they've discovered, huh, union leadership doesn't actually really speak for me at all. And in fact, I'm required to forcibly contribute to an organization that has none of my best interests at heart, but many of the interests relate to lining the pockets of union leadership. So my point is, I'm not even sure from whom all of these statements about the children emanate. Maybe there are certain teachers who are using that as an excuse. Um, but this, this does point out that those who are saying that have not really paid any attention to the quote unquote science because there is, it is objectively true, as you just said, that the lowest risk population relating to COVID are children, anyone under the age of essentially 18. And yes, I understand there have been incredibly rare situations where a number of people in that demographic, literally, I think you could count them on one or two hands globally have died or have acquired some very, very rare dangerous side effect relating to heart condition, whatever. But the reality is that every study that has been done demonstrates that kids are almost, it's almost impossible for them to get this in a way that could be fatal and that there really is no evidence that they transmit this in any significant way. So it's right. coming and going. So I want to play, this is a clip from Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul. I don't know. always agree with Rand Paul. He's a little bit He's not my top cup of tea most of the time, but I, I wanted to play this because I think it probably epitomizes what a lot of people are thinking. All I hear, Dr. Fauci, is we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't play baseball. Well, even that's not based on the science. I mean, flu season peaks in February. We don't know that COVID's going to be like the flu season. It might, but we don't know that. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't ban school in October. You might close some schools when they get the flu. We need to not be so presumptuous that we know everything. 
But my question to you is, can't you give us a little bit more on schools that we can get back to school, that there's a great deal of evidence and it's actually good, good evidence. The kids aren't transmitting this. It's rare. And the kids are staying healthy. And that, yes, we can open our schools. What do you think about that? Well, well, I think he's correct. In fact, I don't know if you saw this. There was uh, a clip that I saw online where CNN uh, did a segment with six different epidemiologists and they were asked their position on whether kids should return to school. Now, I'm sure the person that actually was the producer for this has now been fired because every single one, every single one of these epidemiologists who I'm sure had been vetted in some respect uh, that they were hoping they would toe the party line, which is no, 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 it's a death trap. Civilization will collapse. Every single one of them said, well, yeah, we, we actually, I'm going to send, I want to send my kids back to school. And then the, the amusing part was the, the screenshot then back to the stupefied CNN anchor whose face read as if he had just been, you know, just been told the world is flat uh, could not believe it. You know, who put together this segment? This is not the narrative. So of course, of course he's correct. Now that doesn't mean you don't do it in a sensible way with, with, with precautions. But, but again, his larger point about baseball, this has long since stopped being about any amount of science. And it's about completely arbitrary, uh, edicts issued by people who, mm, again, destroyed any vestige of credibility a month ago when they said it's perfectly fine for 10,000 people to gather in the street and protest and riot and stand shoulder to shoulder and scream and spew viral load all over the place. That was perfectly fine, but we need to go back now and we can't have baseball and you really can't have more than 25 people in your restaurant and Donald Trump certainly can't campaign. Well, you've, you've demonstrated that you're not talking about science. You, ha you simply have a political agenda and you're wielding power arbitrarily and based on selected constituencies that you favor. So why should anyone listen to anything that they say? It's not clear to me right now why anyone should. Well, ironically, Anthony Fauci is throwing out the first pitch at the Nationals game. Uh, is he going to be in like a full astronaut suit? <laughs> I don't believe so. He had a Nationals bandana over his mouth. Uh, my guess, my question to you is over under, he's 79 years old. Does he throw the ball over the plate or does it skip in front of the plate? Oh, he, he, there's no way he hits the plate. <laughs> it's a slider on the outside. Well, plus, you know what? He will say the reason he doesn't want to is because that's more dangerous. The ball should really oh. skip. Uh, the accumulated dirt will kill whatever COVID airborne COVID germs had attached in flight. If he throws it directly to the catcher, there's not that interruption in the viral transmission. That's my new theory, which I've just adopted and it's empirically studied and based on sound science. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. So Betsy DeVos came out this week and said that, uh, federal funding may be withheld. She's a secretary of education, may be withheld from schools that do not reopen. And then she kind of clarified again over the weekend that that money actually may be diverted to parents who obviously won't have the money to send their kids somewhere else. What are your thoughts on that? Because I have some thoughts. I want to hear what you have to say before I. Well, I did. I did read the headlines about that. I again, I don't I have I would want to see exactly what she said and what policy, the details of exactly what policy she would be implementing. I mean, when she's talking about funds being withheld, is she talking about targeting specific schools, specific school districts, specific states? 
I'm, I'm not sure what the contours of that were. I think there are certain states. I think there are certain districts. I think there's certain, I don't know. I think, you know, if every school in a state opened but one, I guess that school wouldn't get federal funding, whatever they would normally get. Well, and again, because in my view, okay, school districts are ultimately at the mercy of the politicians in that state. In other words, you may have a school district that believes we really would like to open, but you don't get to make that call. If you're in a state like California, where Governor Gavin the Just has decided that no one will return to school until a vaccine has been developed and then tested on 1 billion people, you don't, you don't get to decide, well, you know what, we're all going back to school anyway, right? So that's why I make the point about how are they targeting this? Because it's not really fair in my view to penalize people who ultimately are not the ones that have the decision-making authority on these issues. And if you are forced to not go to school, uh, I'm not really sure how that is, why that is necessarily fair so again, I would really need to know exactly what is contemplated here before I would say good idea, not a good idea. And I get why the administration is saying this, but a, but a cudgel here um, doesn't necessarily make sense to me. So I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first one was there was, I think Trump backed himself into a corner back in March when there was a national shutdown. It should have been a state by state shutdown based on the what was happening in the ground. He made this blanket pronouncement, I'm sure for political reasons. And now he's trying to walk it back a little bit. And I, I don't know if that's going to work. He's trying to get the schools back in session. There's an election in November. Schools aren't in session. People get angry. People are upset. People might vote differently uh, in the election. Totally understand that. Uh, Betsy DeVos works for the president. So therefore- yeah, but you know what? Hold on. Stop yes. there for a minute. Sure. The political calculation relating to people getting angry because schools are not back in session. Aren't they going to? Okay. So let's do a profile here. What are the most likely states where school is not going to be back in session? The places where he didn't win with the exception of Florida. Correct. So if people are actually angry in in the blue states, California, New York, Michigan, we know the usual suspects and the governors, right? Pennsylvania. Now we're going back to school. But in other words, I'm not sure why it would make sense to believe that he... Number one, he's in states where, okay, the, the vast majority of people aren't inclined necessarily to vote for him, at least in the urban areas. But but if there is a mass of people in that state who typically might not vote, right, because you live in California and you're a Republican, well, but if you're mad enough about that, you're not going to be blaming Donald Trump. You're well, probably going to be blaming the governor of that state who is issuing these orders. I disagree because I believe that the media has painted Donald Trump as – He's mishandled the entire COVID mess. And apparently, according to Anthony Fauci, Andrew Cuomo has done a stellar job. Well, we need to talk about that separately because in terms of the credibility of Anthony Fauci. And that loses all for me. Anyway, I I feel like every time I read an article, it's not from Fox News. Well, certainly not from Chris Wallace, but not from Fox News and not from uh, Breitbart or something like that. It's always Donald Trump has done a lousy job of managing this, and we wouldn't have the COVID-19 pandemic if Joe Biden was president. That wouldn't have happened. Or if 
Barack Obama was president, we wouldn't have this pandemic. It was all because Trump okay. mismanaged it. Well, that's fair enough. And I mean, it's if true. you're somebody, if you're somebody that is that far gone, that you're simply going to blame Donald Trump as you know, the unified field theory, the orange destructor is blamed for all. But on this particular issue, most people have retained enough. Uh, you know, neurons that are still firing in their brains to recognize that these are decisions that are made at a state and local level. And they also understand because he, they can't keep him off of Twitter. He's still, he's still the president that, that Donald Trump is not the guy who is saying we shouldn't have school. So right. I think there would be enough people where it would penetrate. No, this decision that I'm really upset about because I want my kids to go to school and I don't really think it's bad enough to cancel school. That's not really going to be easy to blame on bad orange man. Well, I don't think he should be blamed, but we'll go back to the, the point of the schools. I 100% agree that if you don't open, and I don't care if it's your politicians, I don't care if it's your teachers, union, I don't care if, if it's the, the parents don't want to send their kids back. I, you've got state funding for schools, you've got local funding for schools, and you've got federal funding for schools. The federal government shouldn't, I shouldn't pay in Pennsylvania for California schools not to open, not a zero dollar of my taxes should go to a California school that has not opened. I don't well, believe. Well, I guess my question would be why? Why should your taxes go to a California school that no, isn't open? It shouldn't go to. Well, that's because the federal. That's how the federal tax system works. They take your money and they give it out across the country. But I, I, I totally. But it's not as if they're not the, the brick and mortar school is not going to be open. It's not as if they're not going to offer education. Okay, it's not like they're telling the kids, listen, well, stay at home, play in the garage with gasoline and matches, do whatever you want, because school's done. You're, you're going to have an entire year where you're never going to see anyone who's a teacher or any lesson plan. I mean, that's not what's happening. Well, I don't think it's happening everywhere. But if if you're not opening the building, by definition, you need less money to run a facility that isn't open. You need some. You got to keep it heated. You got to keep it somewhat cooled. You got to maintain the building but you don't need nearly as much uh, cost to, to run the building. You have different costs than you would otherwise, but you don't have the food costs. You don't have the, the uh, apparently you're going to have some layoffs because you're not going to need the custodians. You're not going to need the cafeteria workers. You're not going to need certain things like that because they're not going to be there. You may rehire them later, but you're not going to need them if your building isn't open. You know, every building has facilities that need to maintain. You're not going to have them. So you don't need that money. The other point I have is, there are certain school districts in this country who claim they're going to open 50%, 50% of school, 50% half time or uh, online half the time, two and a half days, two and a half days. To me, that's basically saying we're shifting it again to the parents. So if I'm responsible for maintaining my child's education, and let's be fair, there was no plan in place, nor should there necessarily been in March when everything shut down. My daughter's school district, did a lousy job. Maybe yours did a better job. Mine did a lousy job of maintaining an educational component for my daughter's education. And a lot of it was shifted to the parents to do almost everything. And I started to question, why am I paying any money in taxes to a district who is not actually doing anything? Well, that's not every school district. That's not every teacher. I know there are teachers, anecdotally, there are teachers who actually taught. But I gotta, I'm living down the street from a shop teacher a high school shop teacher who was getting his full salary. Tell me how he was teaching shop online. Yeah. Tell me what's well, I, I understand what you're saying, but here's another, here's an, a, larger, a larger concern that I have, which is 
this smacks very much of picking winners and losers based on whether or not you agree with the political positions of the White House and the party that's in power at the federal level. So let me give you another example. What if in a Joe Biden administration, the federal government took the position that any school district that does not implement the BLM curriculum from K through 12 as part of its you know, basic learning will no longer receive federal funding. Okay. So I understand that that's not a perfect analogy because schools not opening is not a curriculum. It's literally not the provision of, of services, but nevertheless, making that kind of edict from a federalism standpoint is problematic to me because even though you and I agree that the decision to not open schools in, in many of these instances, I don't think is going to be justified you're still basically telling those districts we are stripping or, or states, we are stripping you from local or state control of this issue. And because you don't agree with us, we're withdrawing federal support. My concern is that that is a Pandora's box that could be very easily flipped to pick your issue du jour that a federal democratic administration would then be saying, you either do this or no money for you. We've already seen them attempt to do that. So I don't like that as a precedent because at at the end of the day, I think each state needs to be able to make their own decisions about whether or not it is safe to open schools. Now, you and I could objectively look at that from all the information that's available and say, it's absurd, right? California, yeah. it's absurd. There is no scientific basis for this. But should the federal government be in the business of telling them, if you don't agree with our position on this, uh, you're not receiving funding? I'm not so sure. I, I have I have strong reservations about that. Okay, and that's fair to have that. And I, I understand your analogy. I agree it's not an ideal one because there's no curriculum dictate from the Trump administration, but it certainly could be. Uh, I'm not a fan of federal funding for state schools anyway. I, I don't know that I don't know that federal dollars should be used to fund state institutions, whether it's colleges or high schools or secondary schools or whatever. That's not that's not the responsibility of the federal government. That's responsible of your state. And if you can't live within your means, because you use California as another example, that's money that's being now funneled to pension plans. It's of course things that I don't get that the, that my teachers don't get. They're going to California or they're going to Illinois or whatever. It, it, well, the other point is to extend that the kids in California aren't getting it. In other words, the people in the very state that it's supposed to go towards, that money is fungible. Again, you're right. It's being used to fill the gaping black hole that is the public uh, sector pension disaster, okay, which exists in multiple states. So you're right. Edu you know, Funds that are earmarked for education are often not used for anything that you would associate with Oh, new computers, new books. Sure, some of it is, but a lot of it is as a stopgap for the massive debt that is burning a hole in every state's, you know, fiscal situation. So your your point is well taken. It's not just that people outside the state aren't getting the benefit expected. People within the state are not getting the benefit expected either. I, I guess I, I'm to the point where I've seen enough of this graft and corruption. I just want if you if you want to make that edict as a state said, we're not opening, or as a district, we're not opening for whatever reason, then you shouldn't expect, I don't think the federal government should be funding you at all, then your state can have that discussion with you. If Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania says schools can't open, then Governor Wolf has to say to the districts, I'm not letting you open, 
but I'm also not giving you taxpayer dollars to keep you open because you're not open. Now, if you say they're going to do online, then they need to do a heck of a lot better job than they did since March from my experience. I, I hear across the board, kids get varying levels of education from that. And I think it can work to a point, but it's really not a replacement for oh no concentrated learning in no, place. It's, it's certainly not a replacement. Uh, and so whatever improvements are made, and I'm sure there will be some, it's never going to be equivalent to a classroom setting. That's just reality. And it can't be. And I think the other issue is if you're meeting half time, what do you do with your elementary age student if both parents work the other half of the week? What, what do I do with that? How do I put my first? Well, grader, but what do I do? This is a good segue because I was reading about uh, Mayor de Blasio's master plan in New York where they're going to basically use every available public building um, commandeer, whether it's a warehouse or a court, whatever. And we're going to put all the kids that need that daycare, right? Those services into those buildings. Now, here's my question. And I'm not, again, I, I don't have a degree in uh, epidemiology. So clearly this is beyond the scope of my expertise, but it seems to me that if the justification for only going to actual school for two days a week is that we don't want lots of kids in close contact, I'm not sure then what's sending hundreds of thousands to them to daycare, how that is somehow different. Can you explain that, Chad? Sure. It protects the teachers who are a big union. That's uh -huh. it. End of story. You mean that Bill de Blasio was being disingenuous when he said this uh -huh. is about the safety of the children? I think every time I hear somebody stand up from an educational standpoint or governorship or mayorship saying this is about the children, all I hear is you're trying to protect your own worthless self. You're trying to right. protect but even okay, even the idea of protecting the teachers. Okay, this goes back to let's talk about science. Sure. Now, I'm not really sure in terms of the transmission of a virus that having kids in front of you two days a week is all that much better than five days a week. In other words, so the virus is not as active on the Wednesday, Friday schedule. In other words, there is no scientific basis for believing that. If, you're, if you are someone who is in a high-risk age and you're teaching dozens of school children any period of time, whether it's one day or three days, the idea that somehow less days makes a statistically meaningful difference in your chances of catching the virus, where was that ever established? It's not. It's another one of these rules that they've created that if you actually examine it has no scientific validity whatsoever. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually have a clip from a scientist who solved this. So let me play this because I think you'll find this very interesting. Some of you might be wondering why last month I was writing articles about how leaving your house is basically bludgeoning the elderly, and this month I'm writing articles about the importance of large social gatherings. And after a ton of research, scientists have discovered that the X factor in determining whether a gathering is dangerous is whether or not I, Mark Diamond, personally support it. There's something about the dynamics of the coronavirus mixed with my personal political beliefs that made it important to snitch on your friends for gathering last week and important to snitch on them for not supporting gatherings this week. Science is crazy. For example, science 
determined that white people gathering in the park last week were basically Ben Stiller from Happy Gilmore. And now they have a social duty to make large gatherings a cardinal part of their identity. They've been able to A-B test this with causes I don't support, like religious gatherings, family events, and the science shows that coronavirus is still rampant at these gatherings. Something about the molecules in my opinions that made groups of five bad, but groups of 10,000 good, running a store bad, but looting a store good. I'm not a scientist, but health officials everywhere have been experiencing the exact same phenomenon. Hey, I'm as surprised as you are that my opinions made Corona live on surfaces last month and immune to them this month. It also appears that my opinions have the ability to change someone like Kanye West's anatomy to make them fundamentally good or bad. Scientists have also found that Donald Trump plays a big role in this and that I choose my opinions in opposition to his, which then allows Corona to use that information when deciding which gatherings that it plans to infect. You know, it's a very complicated issue and all you can do at home right now is follow me and other bloggers on Twitter as our opinions constantly change so you can figure out which causes make you a murderer and which ones make you a hero. So they're solved. It's yes. Solved. Well, that's, that's correct. He is, he's laid out exactly what the scientific underpinnings of <laughs> most of this are, but you, you alluded to <laughs> Dr. Fauci, the same yes. Dr. Yes. Fauci. Now, um, Sage. I'm not a, I'm not a Fauci basher. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, I'm hesitant to bash anyone uh, from the perspective of hindsight. So in other words, nobody knows or could have predicted totally what was going on with this sure. virus. However, if you're going to be trotted out as the guy who is the sage of the coronavirus and who everyone is supposed to accept as the last word because you have the scrolls of science that you are unveiling every time you go to the podium. When you make a statement after watching what has unfolded, after presumably carefully monitoring all of this information, that New York and Governor Grim Reaper, Mario Cuomo, are representative of the best way to handle this virus, you have now self-immolated. You cannot be listened to anymore. You're like the man running around with a paper Burger King crown on his head in the parking lot, wearing a bathrobe, claiming that the world is coming to an end. So how anyone who is supposedly in a position of authority, who knows what whereof he speaks, can point to New York as the model, you need to, you need to resign. You need to resign in shame and go somewhere where we can't see you anymore. And that, that is a completely inexplicable thing for him to have said. Somebody told me today, they said, I kind of feel like he's working for the Biden campaign. Hmm. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> what did you this say? Is, this is a reminder for people because, again, if you don't follow these things, the only thing that you know about Governor Cuomo is that based on his interviews with his brother on CNN, he has a really big nose. His meatball recipe is excellent. And as far as anyone at CNN or the mainstream media is concerned, he has been a heroic, responsible, fearless leader. Hmm. The unfortunate part of that narrative is that the facts on the ground completely explode all of that, starting with, as we have discussed multiple times, his order mandating that people infected with the virus be sent to nursing homes. Let me repeat, people infected with the virus, elderly people, were sent to live among the most vulnerable people in the population who were known to be at an incredibly high risk of dying. And in fact, those people did die in the thousands in New York because of that order, which was in place for at least a month, a month and a half. 
Cuomo doubled down on it when he was confronted initially until he finally realized I've created mass graves by doing this. And then he began to blame Trump and the federal government and anyone but himself. For that reason alone, he should be removed from office in terms of the voters saying, you have been a complete disaster. You want to talk about having blood on your hands if we're going to play that game? The person that has the most identifiable and directly causally linked blood on his hands is Governor Cuomo. Not only that, if you look at the actual population statistics in terms of case fatality rates, even though everyone who's in the smart group likes to mock Florida and all the other red state governors, New York has the worst ratio of fatalities to 1 million in population of any state in the country. Now, you may want to make excuses and say that's a highly dense urban area. They have the most inter international incoming people, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. But nevertheless, you're holding them up as the gold standard. We also know that in their public transportation system, it took Mayor, uh, Governor Cuomo at least until I believe May 6th, remember, started in March, May 6th, to be regularly cleaning, disinfecting, doing all of that stuff to the subway system. That doesn't sound very proactive to me based on the guidelines set forth by Dr. Fauci and others. So what are your thoughts on the uh, laudatory opinion of Mayor, or Governor, I keep saying Mayor, Governor Cuomo by the guy that supposedly knows all he's, he's supposed to know about this stuff? So... If I knew nothing else about Anthony Fauci except that, and I know what I know about Andrew Cuomo and his bungling, let me just say, you can't call Donald Trump on anything if you're Andrew Cuomo because you have far more problems on your hands and caused more problems than you could ever blame on Donald Trump for COVID-19. But if Anthony Fauci wants to be taken seriously, there is no way in the world outside of the CNN crowd that you could possibly say, hey, they're a model, that New York is a model for what you should do correctly. There is. We could keep going. No initially, initially, he said apocalyptically, New York must have 30,000 to 40,000 ventilators available. And he was on record as saying, because the government only provided or only had 10 or 15,000 that Donald Trump is now responsible for the 26,000 corpses that are going to pile up. And of course it turned out they needed about 6,000 ventilators. They wound up taking them, the ones that they didn't use the thousands and sending them to other States. He also requested emergency, um, rooms for people because the hospitals were going to be over flooded. And so what was the ship that was sent that was in the harbor that was available to them. I forget the name. That ship was never used. It right. was there for two weeks, completely unused and left. I mean, we you could go on and on with this in terms of his bungling. And yet this is the guy that the media is holding up as man to emulate. There's nothing to emulate other than here's a blueprint for what not to do. You brought up the May 6th when he started actually cleaning the subways may 6th and the first time they were cleaned apparently he had to have a press op where he got to be shown cleaning the subways now i don't think for a second he's cleaning the subways in new york city uh, sorry don't buy it that was he was flown down there just to do that but the point is this man found every way to blame everybody but himself 
and then we're being we're supposed to take Fauci's word. This is how you're supposed to do it. I have no clue what he's talking about. This Either is yet another. This is the again. It, it happens every day. This gaslighting, right? Yeah. This is gaslighting on steroids. The emperor really does have lots, <laughs> lots of fine clothes. The emperor really did a tremendous job at the skilled nursing facilities. One of the other things I loved about New York, remember when they were implementing the very rigorous contact tracing, right? We need, what was the one stipulation that you couldn't ask people? Do you remember? Where they've been. You can't ask them if they've been at a mass protest. Now that sounds very sciencey to me. So... We're interested in knowing how the virus might spread, but as your little video or your audio clip showed, you're not allowed to ask about certain things. You could certainly ask them if they've attended a Hasidic funeral where 10 people were present, or if they've been in a park where Jewish children like to play, that's a problem. But right. certainly don't ask them if they've been in the street looting among thousands of other people not wearing masks shoulder to shoulder. Don't ask them about that. Well, I think, I think that's the, we talked about this briefly before. The whole rub is you, you can't be scientifically accurate one day and then the next day it's totally okay if it's a social program you agree with. I read something today and it just had to make me laugh. It was a USA Today opinion poll or opinion column about the fact that Biden has to reclaim the White House because only Republicans screw up the country and Democrats have to spend the first two to three years of each administration cleaning up the mess that the right. Republicans leave. And they cited Watergate. They, they cited um, the tax repeals of Reagan in 87. Uh, they cited the uh, SNL. So th that's viewed, as a, that's viewed as a bug and not a feature, the tax repeals? Apparently, uh -huh. fix all the, the, the SNL failures in 91, the uh, wars by Bush 43, and you know, and the terrible economy that Bush left Obama and Obama left Trump a great economy. And look where it is today. Look where it is today. Right. Tony. Uh, that's that's it's that's very that's very compelling. So I'm like, wow, are you very narrow, narrow in your focus that you can't even see that? Uh, granted, both parties have screwed up things over the years. Every party, every politician. But wow, you're, you're trying to blame the bad economy today on trump not covid you tried to blame the wars in afghanistan and iraq on bush without remembering 9 11 uh and the snl's really that was that was somehow the republicans fault for the snl's yes there was deregulation but the people themselves should take responsibility i i, I had a conversation with somebody today and i said you know at some point adults have to take responsibility for their own actions they can't blame somebody else every time something goes wrong, a la Andrew Cuomo. It's not somebody else's fault when you made the decision and you made a bad decision. Well, I mean, look, it's not even at that individual level. I mean, we, we could spend an hour talking about the government policies that were being implemented uh, under the Clinton administration in terms of demanding that lenders make housing available to people that don't qualify. And so there's this entire environment where they're making shaky loans to people that shouldn't have them because that was the mandate because everyone has to have a home and it's, and it's racist and all that other stuff. And what do you know? 
we wound up with millions and millions of worthless mortgages that were then packaged into those collateralized debt obligations and no one knew what they were. And then we had a major crash. We can talk about all that stuff, but blaming deregulation, you know, which is the, the usual boogeyman, uh, writ large without focusing on what was the catalyst for creating these investment instruments that were so junk, right? That were worthless. It wasn't emanating from any Republican administration. So this is the game that they play all the time. That's fine. It's expected. Did you see today that Barney Frank said that Elizabeth Warren would not be a good choice for secretary, secretary of the treasury? This is Barney Frank. You, Wait, you just talk. Barney Frank is still being quoted by media outlets for his insights. He's from Massachusetts. Warren's from Massachusetts. They're both. And what Democrats. was his what was his rationale? That she would. She's not a good fiduciary responsible fiduciary responsible person. Again, Barney Frank, who helped create what you're talking about the collateralized loans. Yes, Barney Frank, who basically oversaw Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who. Oh, was, don't forget. Wasn't, wasn't he uh, partnered with the guy who yes. was also. Yes. He was essentially the gatekeeper, the oversight of those two government agencies, which at one point wound up holding. And I forget the, now the percentage essentially every one of those mortgage backed securities that all failed. Yes. So he's certainly someone that we should be going to for wisdom about fiduciary obligations. I don't think Barney Frank should be in charge of anything related to money. I certainly don't think Elizabeth Warren. Let me switch gears a little bit to the left coast again. Do we have uh, to? Well, uh, I want to I talk about the fact that uh, Portlandia is trying to take it. I said it right, Portlandia. They're, they're weird. They're proud of that. They call themselves Portlandia. They're trying to take over the number one spot from Minneapolis for quickest meltdown with dumbest people in charge. So also, I, I think Seattle is also, I mean, don't, don't slight Seattle. I don't want to slight Seattle. I think they're, they're in the running for the top spot on the podium not as well. Not, not to forget Chicago, LA, Miami. I mean, only Seattle so far had, you know, the longest running autonomous zone. True. But it seems as though Portland's got the record for the most consecutive days of rioting. <laughs> so they've, they've got that handled down. So this is in the Portland, and I, I say this with straight face, intelligencer, and I use that term loosely because the article has no intelligence whatsoever in it, but here's the headline. Unidentified, unidentified federal agents are detaining protesters in Portland. Then they put up a picture of this unidentified federal agent. Oh, he's wearing camo. He's got a Homeland Security badge on. It says police across the front, and he's got a tag with his uh, ID on it. But he's unidentified. Nobody knows what they are. Supposedly, these cars are coming up and grabbing people off the street and taking them away. Taking them to CIA black sites. Apparently. Now, they're in full riot gear. They're, they're dressed like they're commandos. They've got automatic weapons. And a car, apparently, Portland residents can't tell the difference between them and the rioters. So that's the government's fault. The mayor has said to the federal government, get out. The governor has said to the federal government, get out. I say either we burn it down or we basically just say, okay, you're off. You're on your own. We're not going to spend any money to try to protect you because apparently you don't want to be protected. What do you think? Right. Well, 
I'm sort of of two minds on this. If if I'm going to be um, cynical, let them have what they deserve, Tony, then my attitude is, look, if you want to turn your city into the 2020 version of Lord of the Flies, um, have at it. And that's exactly what they're attempting to do. That's what was going on in Seattle. But I guess at some point, the more civic-minded Tony says, at, at some stage, it is the president's obligation, the federal government's obligation to protect all citizens of the country. And I agree. I am a person that says generally the federal government needs to stay out of state affairs. There's too much of that already. That's why the 10th amendment, I take it seriously, right? Federalism, you know, that's the supposed one of the rifts between conservatives and liberals. Conservatives like the 10th amendment. We don't like intrusion by the federal government. I get it. However, when it comes to public health and safety, when it comes to allowing riots to persist in an American city where property and lives are constantly threatened, at some point, if the local and state elected officials are too feckless, cowardly, or just wicked, right, who are, who are interested in, in enabling this to go on uh, and are basically incapable or unwilling of preventing it, then I do think there becomes a time when the federal government has to say enough is enough. If you can't protect the citizens of your state and your municipal areas, then we're going to have to. So I don't, and now where does that line get drawn? I don't know. I guess it varies. You can have a difference of opinion about that, but what is it? 51 days, 51 consecutive days of rioting. I believe so. Yeah. I think that that probably is long enough to justify a phone call to the governor saying you get your house in order in 48 hours, or we're going to do it for you because guess what? This isn't affecting you in the governor's mansion, but you've got a whole bunch of people, by the way, who are the people that you claim to care the most about whose lives are being destroyed and whose businesses are being burned and whose windows are being smashed. And they're the ones that are somehow being victimized here, and yet you don't really seem to care about that. So yeah, we're going to turn it down. I should have said, if you leave your own devices, uh, I think the reality is for me, I want, I believe in the Constitution that all those powers not clearly enumerated in the Constitution or the federal government automatically revert to the state, regardless of what other rulings have said in the, in the meantime. If it doesn't explicitly say in the Constitution or an amendment to the Constitution that the federal government has that authority, then they do not. That that's my reading of the Constitution, and I would think uh, originalists would feel the same way. Uh, I, I don't know what day it has to become of consecutive rioting before you say, "Hey, uh, that's not." And I don't believe everybody in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis wanted what happened. I don't, I don't think everybody was rioting. No, of course they didn't. So I think the point. You have an obligation to protect those people and to say, as a governor, as a mayor, local authorities, whatever those actually mean, what, at what point do you say, okay, you've had your chance to protest. You've had your chance to – now, don't, don't get me wrong. Peaceful protest is not my thing. I think it's guaranteed under our laws that you should be able to do that with, you know, you get permits and things like that. Can't just protest because you want to protest. But I, I don't believe that rioting, looting, destroying public property constitutes a 
peaceful protest, regardless of what the media will tell you, that is not a peaceful protest. If somebody got injured, that's not peaceful. Peaceful is I walk down the street, I have some chants, I sing some songs, I, I don't do anything to antagonize or attack anybody. If somebody's starting to shoot at me or somebody's starting to throw things at me or they're lighting things on fire, that is not a peaceful protest. I don't know what definition they're using, but that's not peaceful. Portland, 51 days of, of rioting. That's not peaceful. I'm sorry. I don't know if you saw the video. There was some video of uh, Portland moms, 100 moms pr keep protecting the protesters. But last night, they were trying to break down the police barracks. They were trying right. to get into the police barracks. And all, they, all you see is the police came out and they shot lots of tear gas and rubber bullets and people got hurt. You literally tried to storm the building and harm the people inside. At what point do the police say, hey, you know what? We're allowed to defend ourselves. You attack me. I'm allowed to defend myself from you. And I can feel threatened. There's 100 of me and there's 10,000 of you. Can I feel threatened? I don't care how well I'm trained. Should I not feel threatened by that? I think you should. Well, here's the best way. Here's the best way to understand this. And I use the same example when it came to the autonomous zone. All you need to do about this scenario is change one variable. Okay, here, you ready? Here's the variable yep. we're going to change. Instead of the Antifa goons and the BLM activists and whoever else is out in the street causing mayhem and destroying buildings and attacking police, I want you to replace them with a group of alt-right, uh, MAGA hat-wearing, Confederate flag-waving militia who are running rampant in Portlandia doing exactly the same thing, attacking the police, destroying businesses. What do you think the first thing the governor would be saying immediately? That's Get the federal troops in here and start shooting these chaos-wielding, racist destroyers of civilization, right? So yeah. if that is the clear reaction, and that's absolutely what the reaction would be. The New York times would be blaring from page one that they all should be put lined up and shot for treason. Right? Well, it's exactly the same scenario for whatever reason, the people that are in charge seem to have some sympathy with the political affiliations of those who are doing the destruction. That's really not good enough. So if you know, you would immediately be calling for federal intervention to stop the wicked MAGA racists, right? The KKK people from doing this. Why should it be permitted by people that you think are just much more, you know, savory in terms of their political viewpoints? It's exactly the same situation. So over the weekend, there was a neo-Nazi protest not far from where I'm living now. Um, police were in force. They blockaded off the two synagogues in the nearby area. And it was peaceful. For all intents and purposes, it was peaceful. Now, I don't agree with anything the neo-Nazis were promoting. I don't agree with anything they're trying to get out there. But I believe they have the First Amendment right to do what they did. Just like I believe the, PL the BLM folks have the right to peacefully protest. Absolutely. They don't have to agree with anything they're doing. And I think that's the difference from my viewpoint from what I see in the mainstream media, as you pointed out. If I disagree with your version of life, then we can't let you, we have to, we have to push you down and you can't, you can't exercise your rights. But if I agree with you, you can exercise your rights to the extreme. I think the constitution exists for everybody. You have the right to do certain things. 
I don't have to like what you're doing. I don't have to agree with what you're doing. I can think it's vile and hateful, but you still have the right to do it regardless of how I feel about it. That doesn't change. And I think that's the problem we get into in this country. We get too many people who want to say, I don't agree with you. Therefore, I need to censor you. Look at fa- look what Facebook's getting. I'm not well, that's, a face- that's become look. It's that's become the official position of the Democratic Party. Let's not kid ourselves. No, now, you may say, "Well, that's ridiculous, Tony. It's not in their platform." You tell me anyone. We did this exercise before. Tell me anyone among the the leadership of that party, however you want to define that, the Speaker of the House. Uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate. You want to talk about presidential candidates. You want to talk about sort of their leading public figures, AOC, whoever. You tell me anyone in that party who is standing up and making a robust, unequivocal argument that freedom of speech pertains to everyone, that you don't get to silence or muzzle people who have views that differ from yours, even if you find them incredibly hateful. That is no longer the position of the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is now a left-wing progressive party. And I I read somewhere, and I like this, I think this might have been from Glenn Reynolds, uh, who said, the new dynamic is that according to the left, silence is violence, but actual violence is merely speech. (laughs) Right? And and that's that's exactly right. They're, They're willing to excuse threatening people, attempted murder, right? We've, we've heard explanations for, yes, it's terrible. They tried to run over that cop with an SUV, but you've got to understand deep-seated you know, institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, there's no excuse for that. That's a crime. The person that's doing that uh, needs to go to jail. And yet, oh my goodness, Tom Cotton was allowed to present an editorial in the New York Times. And you literally had members of the new side of that organization who staged a coup, who got the editor of the editorial page fired. He resigned, like <laughs> people in the Soviet Union used to resign. And yeah. their argument was that the ideas, the very ideas being expressed there, which by the way, were very mainstream, the the notion that as we've just been talking about, if rioting goes on long enough, civil unrest, the federal government should call in troops to quell that. Now you can completely disagree with Tom Cotton. Okay, that's fine. That's the whole point of an editorial. Their newsroom rose up and said, the mere expression of those views places us in physical harm. And therefore, not only must that be abolished, but we can never, ever again allow those kinds of crime thoughts to be published in these pages. And then you saw the resignation of Barry Weiss, um, who was brought on board, ironically, to, this is now laughable, uh, to expand the diversity of views uh, within the pages of the New York Times. Well, you know, that went about as well as could have been expected. She was literally, uh, she was harassed. She documents the fact that she's bullied. She was called a Nazi. This woman's a Jew That's a, who who is one of the most vociferous advocates for Israel. Somehow she's also a Nazi. But she she lays out how that paper, and that paper is emblematic of essentially the entire media culture now. Uh, they only have orthodoxy. They're not interested in presenting fair-minded facts. They're interested in presenting a very narrow narrative uh, almost sort of a a scriptural reading of what the truth is according to them, and if you differ, you are to be destroyed. And that is now that is now how they operate. That's how a lot of it is operating. That's that's unfortunate. So we didn't solve anything tonight, other than 
I got to voice some opinions. Uh, I don't want to go back just real quick on the teachers. I didn't mean to imply every teacher out there is awful and they haven't been doing their job. I think there are some that have done Herculean efforts to try to make online learning great. I just think well, a lot. Of there's mail- a lot. I mean, look, there's there's a ton of really good teachers. I mean, and look, I don't envy teachers. They've put they've been put in an impossible situation, particularly those that are going to have to prepare for both in person learning and then also remote lesson plans. Those yes. are two totally different things. They are. They are. My contention was a lot of people have had to go back to work, whether they liked it or not, or they didn't get paid. So. I think it's unfair to say we're going to pay you, but you don't actually have to come in uh, because I, I work with people who have been told you have to be here. Some people in, in this organization can work from home. You can't, you have to be here or you will not get paid. Now that maybe that's a, an indictment on other people, but I think, you know, the arguments of, well, I feel at risk. I feel, okay. Those are individual discussions. Those aren't mass discussions. I just feel very frustrated that, you know, there's certain groups out there who think they should get paid just for existing and other people have to actually go to work to get paid. And I don't think, I don't think that's a fair uh, allotment for the situation we find ourselves in. And I don't think that one group should be special above another. And I heard somebody say yesterday, if you paid me like you pay a doctor, I'd go into work too. And I don't believe that. I think you'd still say, I don't want to go into work because I'm at risk. So I, the pay isn't the issue. There are, there are a lot of people I see every day who are making minimum wage and still come into work every day and do their job uh, around high well, risk. Most of the people that are on the front lines fall into that category. Yeah, not everybody's a doctor. Let me just say, not everybody on the front lines is a doctor. There's a lot of people out there well, making I mean, the people that we consider, you know, first responders, people in emergency rooms, nurses, all these people are not, they're not getting rich. And, and they're going on literally in the front lines being exposed to, I mean, you want to talk about weighing risk factors and and sort of, you know, exposure to viral loads. Those people are on in the line of fire and they're doing it every day. And I think the contention that one of these teachers said, uh, there was an editorial. She said, if I'm not getting hospital level PPE, then I shouldn't have to go in, but you're not exposed to the same risk that the hospital. You're not in, you're in in a hospital. In fact, you're in an environment where you were probably in any group setting among the population that is the least likely to present a risk. That doesn't mean that guaranteed, right? Yeah. But if, you're, if you're assessing risk factors and your potential exposure to this virus, you couldn't pick a much better place to be short of being sheltered than sure. in a group of socially distanced school children. That's about the best possible site for you to be present in any kind of other demographic setting. So you've yeah. got it much better than a whole bunch of other people. I think the irony for me is these are the same people going to Walmart, and Sam's Club, and Costco, and Target shopping, you know, for an hour amongst hundreds of people that they don't even know and aren't, aren't protected from and aren't six feet away from at all times and kind of thing. So, Actually, so I want to, I want to share very quickly because that reminded me of something that was amusing sure. to me about co- as I call it COVID theater. Uh, <laughs> I actually sent an email to a few people at my work about this. So two days ago I went to get lunch at a fast food establishment. And of course I went through the drive-thru. So I pull up to the, the window, I've placed my order and I take out my card and the very nice lady who's the cashier 
I'm about to hand her the card. Now she's not wearing gloves. I'm not wearing gloves. Um, she says, no, no, here. And she hands me a plastic bin. Okay, this is the this is the COVID safety bin, apparently. So, uh, so if you're following this, as I explained, remember the the old unsafe, unsciency procedure was I hand card to cashier, she hands card back to me, then she hands me food. Now mm-hmm. that has been determined to be unsafe. So the way we fixed that, remember, is I now place card in plastic safety bin. She takes card with her hands out of safety bin. Right there, I'm thinking, I think we've now defeated the magical properties of the safety bin because you've now grabbed the card just like you would have if I had handed it to you. And then she places card back in safety bin and I take it back out. Are you feeling safer already, Chad? And then the food, instead of her handing me the bag, we have a bigger safety bin. She places the food bag in the bin and then I take said food bag out of bin. Now, did that? Would that have made you feel exponentially more secure? That very rigorous. It's almost like um, an airlock, wouldn't you say? I mean, the oh, yeah. level of virus stymieing procedures there is incredible. And I'm thinking to myself, this has been implemented by some corporate policy. It is utterly meaningless, it's right? Worse. Just complete. In fact, I would make the argument that it's worse yeah. because you now have this bin. I like to call it a petri dish that is now the repository for all of these cards that are being placed in there. And who knows? You know, I have no real belief that they wash it out with gasoline every time somebody comes through the drive-through. Right? Every two-hour shift, they dunk it in the dirty dishwater and bring it back out. But even if the thing has been uh, you know, scrubbed to a nanoparticle with Purell or whatever, it's doing nothing. I still touch the card. She still touches the card. I still touch the bag. She, the, the little bin in the middle is completely worthless. And yet apparently it makes people feel better that they're it's, not going to get it. It's contactless, Tony. Not, not in reality. It's just not though. Theory, it's contactless. Well, I said, you you want contactless? You set up a pneumatic tube, like at the bank, and you fire the whopper into the driver's mouth. Okay. <laughs> and then I said the only downside whopper. to that is you went to Burger King. Is what you're saying, right? That, that <laughs> you do it everywhere, right? Say open wide. We're going to use a potato gun and fire it into your mouth. The only problem for someone like me is because I hate condiments. I would have no opportunity to discover that they did not listen to me, and that I have a mouthful of mayo, and then there would be a civil rights lawsuit. So we, we don't we don't want that yeah. scenario. We do not want a lawsuit. That would not happen uh, well for anybody. Before we get out of here, your thoughts on baseball reopening, NBA in the bubble? I don't care. I, okay, I you know you know me. I follow pretty much all sports, but I am now to the point where I really don't care at all about baseball. Um, other than I will you know if there's a World Series. So to to be honest, I haven't even been following the ridiculous protocols about you know nobody can sit in the dugout together and you can't spit sunflower seeds and no backwards baseball hats because those promote covid whatever um i haven't even been following i don't care i'm not going to watch at the beginning of the season the nba is also basically dead to me the whole 
the whole cowardice in the face of China, the whole we're going to now have social justice slogans on our uniforms. I, I just don't care. So really, the only sport that I'm interested in seeing whether they can go forward is the NFL. And I, I want to ask you this. I want your opinion. Mm-hmm. My prediction is the NFL is going to start and that at some point there's going to reach a critical mass of people who shockingly are going to test positive because remember the goalposts have been moved. Um, the virus still exists. Flattening the curve does not mean we've magically eliminated the virus. So there are going to be NFL players on every team. They're going to get it. My prediction is there's going to be massive political pressure on the league at that point in time to cancel the season. And what I can't decide is whether the money, okay, the billions of the NBA cash cow will override the sort of ideological need to capitulate to this and cancel the season. I think that there is more than a 50% chance that the season does not complete. What do you think? I think there's a 90% chance the season never actually starts. Okay. Because I don't believe, I think there's enough woke players who will claim that I'm of a high risk group, some sort of the other, the union get involved. Players refuse to play. Big name players. Oh, remember though. Remember, play. the union getting involved well, it's, it's is, is going to be they want games because guess what? If there's no there's games, there's no pay. Well, there, there's not going to be pay. There's already got what what did uh, Mark Davis say? I, I'm coming around to the idea of not having fans in the stands. Well, you take fans out of the stands for football. I, I think you can get away with it in certain sports like golf. Wait, are you telling me that you think fans in the stands for football has, has a significant revenue impact? No, I think it has a, it has a product impact. Oh, sure it does. I think it, it dramatically changes the concept of what a football game is when there's no fans in the no stands. Question. But here's the point. All that matters is the TV contracts. Okay? Well, here's the thing. So the product will be... I agree. Will be almost um it will it will be ruined. You can't play football in an empty stadium. You just can't. The experience right. is nothing like football. But my point is the players want to play because they want to get paid. So yeah. The people that are going to be, you know, there's going to be a group of them that are going to say, we can't do this. Perhaps they're financially secure or whatever, but the vast majority of players in the NFLPA are going to be pushing for, we need to have a season. We need to make this work. I think external forces are going to be brought to bear on the league in such a way when there's, you know, oh, there's 40 players that tested positive on the Colts or whatever. And that's going to become based on what the NFL has already been projecting, which is weakness. For instance, the plan to have, we're going to have two national anthems, right? All of this incredibly idiotic stuff. I think there's a chance that they're going to start because everyone wants to make money. The owners, listen, the league is worth billions of dollars, but I don't know they're going to make it to the finish line. I don't think they're going to make it to the finish line. I don't think, I just don't, college football, here's here's the strange nature. The NCAA hasn't said, we're not going to have fall sports, but individual conferences like uh, the Patriot League, which is made up of teams nobody cares about except those schools. So they're not going to play fall sports. Don't care. Um, what is it? Uh, the Big Ten's going to play only conference games, but have one out of division conference game. 
I, I look at that and I go, okay, the SEC hasn't made a decision what they're going to do for sure, although I think they're going to have to quash certain things. But if you don't have college football, you're left with NFL. And I just do not think the product suffers and TV money will suffer because the product suffers. Well, TV money is not going to suffer in the short term because those are already guaranteed contracts. They are, but I'm sure there's something written in those contracts that says, hey, if we don't get a certain level of viewership because of things that you've done, whether it's the two national anthems, they'll point to something. Well, it'd be interesting to know whether those contracts actually contain those sorts of provisions. I'm not sure that they do because interestingly, um, you know, what you're basically saying is there's some sort of ratings guarantee and that if, if they don't hit those marks, my understanding of NFL contracts would be the NFL has been so obscenely profitable for so long that the only guarantee, so to speak, or the only ability to make an adjustment is essentially when you renegotiate the new contract. I don't think there, now again, I, I'm not an expert on these contracts and they're literally probably thousands of pages long in terms of all of the, the potential stuff that goes into them. I don't think the networks have the option of saying we're adjusting what we pay in the short term because ratings have tanked. I think what they're going to be able to do is to say, if this persists, when we renegotiate with you, there's going to have to be a major reconsideration of the value of your product. Uh, but I think in the short term, you make a good point. I think the experience of watching football will be fundamentally altered, but the money coming in and the TV revenue rules all that is what matters is well, not to change. I, I would contend you're partially right, but I think you're partially wrong because if advertising pulls out then there's no money to pay for the TV contract and they have to go, Hey, we can't sell your product. The, the ratings are awful. We can't sell your product for what we originally budgeted. We have to renegotiate or we have to, get out of the contract because we can't afford to keep it on the well, air. Because I don't think it would become that precipitous because remember, remember when you say, I don't think the ratings are going to dip. In fact, if you hypothesize a sports universe where nobody really cares about baseball, college football may or may not be in whole or in part not happening. NFL is going to have an even higher, a more elevated position than it already does in terms of the only show in town. So I don't think the ratings on TV are going anywhere. I think they potentially are going to go up because what else are people going to watch? You could say that right now. And I don't, I don't see anybody clamoring for baseball, basketball, or hockey. But remember, we're talking about completely different sports. You're not no, going to make the argument that any of those sports is close to the level of popularity as the NFL. Agreed. I, I don't think they're anywhere close to the same caliber, but there's literally nothing else on right now. And I don't hear people clamoring for those three sports at all. No, I, I, agree. Think, at I think all. baseball, I baseball in many ways has become sort of an anachronism. Just it's not marketed well. It's a sport that because of the duration of games does not appeal to younger demographics. They don't, you know, again, we talked about this, ask somebody on the street to name, someone other than Mike Trout or Browse Harper, who's a baseball player, if they're not a, an avid fan, you're going to get a, a blank stare. So baseball has its own problems and those have been ongoing. Basketball has created such a, it has now become a political organization as opposed really to a sport. I, 
I don't think, so I think there's huge backlash there and the NBA ratings have been on a downward trajectory for the last two years. Football is a Leviathan. The NFL is the most profitable thing in, in, in media, right? The most profitable private venture organization, whatever you want to call it. I don't think anything is going to affect the eyeballs that watch the NFL, even if the product is diluted to the point where you're watching empty stadiums. I just don't think so. It'll be an interesting experiment. You could be 100% correct. Uh, we will have to wait and see how that turns out. I want you to think about something for next week, and this is totally not about football. You mean I actually have to think about the program in advance? You have is to it, think about something. That is inconsistent with my I don't, I, don't want your, I don't want your response now. I want you to think about it. Okay. Okay. There's clamoring for electoral college change. I want you to think about. I already know I don't have to think about this, but go ahead. Well, no, I don't want to change electoral college in the way that you think. I want to change how states' electoral votes are counted in that. You want to make them proportional? I want each county to count towards the electoral college votes for that state. So if, using Pennsylvania, there's 67 counties. To win the state of Pennsylvania, you wouldn't win the popular vote, you'd have to win the majority of counties. Okay. And why do you want that? Because I think disproportionately we're giving electoral votes to the cities. Using Pennsylvania's example, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, for the most part, uh, I think six counties voted for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton won six counties in Pennsylvania in 2016. And Donald Trump narrowly won the county, won the state. He should have won he won 62 counties. Now, some are not very populous, and that, that leads to problems. My problem is we have a lot of politicians who spend a lot of inordinate amount of time in places where there aren't a lot of geography, for lack of a better term. They spend a lot of population density places, but they don't really spend time elsewhere. And they don't really represent you if they never actually come there and know anything about what you're going through. Not that they could know everywhere. I understand that. Make it a little bit more. I if I actually want to get your vote, I actually have to court your vote instead right, of but, okay. So and we won't get into this tonight. But so my my immediate or at least threshold pushback on that idea would be twofold. So you can think about your rejoinder to this. The first one is when we're talking about a presidential election, which is a nationwide election, the idea that people are going to stump in individual counties who are presidential candidates is that's never going to happen. Okay. It's, it's impossible. So, so I understand the point you're making about people who simply rely on, and this is what Hillary Clinton's mistake was, right? I don't need to go to flyover country. The Rust Belt is locked up for me. All I need to do is basically campaign in these areas and I'm good to go. You can't expect federal president, presidential candidates in a national election to be going to Centralia, right? In, in Pennsylvania and seeking votes. But so, so that's one, that's one objection is I don't think that model fits a presidential election. But the second issue is your concern that you raised, which is a state like Pennsylvania, unfortunately is dominated by its urban centers. And therefore you get an entire slate of electoral voters based on the dominant urban areas that are not reflective of the state as a whole. That's exactly the same argument, however, that people who want to abolish the electoral college make about red states who have low population density. And they say, why does someone who wins South Dakota 
get to offset electoral votes from a much more population dense state of pick pick your you know, pick your state. California. So it's the argument that you're making in reverse, mm-hmm. which is which is the same. It's and it's used as a justification for abolishing the electoral college, just in a different direction. So I don't think it's in a different direction. I think I see what you're saying, but I don't think it's a when somebody goes to California, I'll use that as a state. Uh, the majority of the population is going to vote Democrat. But in Pennsylvania, a majority of the population might vote Democrat, but a majority of the geography of Pennsylvania does not vote Democrat. Meaning you're, you're not really representing the entire state. You're representing three places in the state. Where in California, you're probably representing the whole majority of the state. There isn't a lot of Republican voters. In- well, the other, the other part of this we can talk about is, and we mentioned this uh, who knows when, uh, this idea of the interstate compact where states are attempting, and these are all blue states, uh, to get an agreement up to 270 electoral votes, which is the, the threshold for victory, that these states would agree that regardless of who won their state in a presidential election, the electors would have to cast their votes for the candidate that won the national popular vote. So for instance, if in Pennsylvania, Donald Trump wins again, but Joe Biden from his basement uh, gets more pop, gets the national popular vote. And that would be expected given the huge uh, sort of overruns that he can expect in a place like California, that Pennsylvania's electors would then have to cast their votes for Joe Biden, even though Donald Trump won Pennsylvania. Uh, that's an interesting sort of beneath the radar thing. It's kind of, I think, lost some momentum. But last I checked, the states that were willing to do that amounted to something around 180 electoral votes. Now that also runs into the problem that there's a provision in the constitution, which talks about forbids these kind of interstate compacts. So there's a constitutional dimension to this. In my view, the only way you're going to amend the electoral college is to do it the old fashioned way, which is why they don't want to do it because it requires super majorities in the houses of, in both houses of Congress and then three quarters, uh, you know, of the states, and that's not going to happen. So they're trying to find a loophole. So we could also maybe uh, have a little bit of discussion about that. But I think we should. But that's for next time. That's that's a teaser for next. We've time. actually covered it all now. So no, no, there's more to talk about. Believe me, there's definitely more to talk about. I've got nothing else, Tony. I, we talked too long tonight, but I, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I appreciate that. Nope, I'm uh, I'm done. I told my Burger King story. That's all I wanted to accomplish. Okay, <laughs> I'm Chad. I'm Tony. Good night. Thanks for listening. This has been a Hannah Tree Production.